Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 11 through 12. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Amen. We got you with the video. Samuel, I'm waiting for that beat to drop. Uh, we're going somewhere with that, as you'll see over the next month. But anyway, uh, welcome to Mosaic. As you can see, we're moving through the book of Genesis, and we come to a very famous passage today, and uh, I'll begin with this thought. Of the world's mm, roughly 7 billion people, more than half of the people alive today trace their spiritual lineage one way or the other back to this man, back to one man who lived in the ancient Near East, a man by the name of Abram, later, name was later changed to Abraham, so we're going to stick with version two for today. But think about that. One out of, you know, of, excuse me, four out of seven billion people alive today in one way or the other point to Abraham as the founder of their faith. Now, that's Amazing. What, what makes this man so special, huh? What, what made Abraham so different? How did this person literally not just change the book of Genesis, as we're going to see, but how did he change the course of human history? I think what made Abraham great was the call of God. The call of God on his life. Now, many people name this passage the call of Abraham, but that's a bit misleading because Abraham at first, he's got nothing to do with anything. It's God who calls him. And what made Abraham great before he ever responded, before he ever did anything else, was simply the fact that he encountered the call of God. And I think in the same way, I'll submit to you, what can make you uh, an impact in the world that can create a, a life like Abraham's was experiencing, being shaped by, and following the same thing, following the call of God. So what is that? What's the call of God? Well, maybe a better way of asking it would be to put it this way, what does the call of God do? What does the call of God do? Now, let me tell you something. I know it's been rainy and everybody's been, you know, kind of driving through the rain and the puddles today and maybe you're still a bit groggy even after worship, but I want to tell you something. I've been slaving over a hot Bible all week and I came with something in my heart from Jesus for you. So I hope that you'll uh, follow along and maybe even, hey, say something if you like it today. Here we go. I'm I'm shamelessly plugging that, but what does the call of God do? It raises the dead. 
The call of God sends you out and the call of God changes your name. Number one, let's go. Let's see what the call of God does. First of all, it raises the dead. Uh, A woman by the name of Dr. Sandra Richter at Wheaton College, uh, she says, seminary professor, she says that most people, when they come to this passage, when when they come to the life of Abraham, they begin in chapter 12. And that kind of makes sense, but that's only because the chapter division sort of threw you off. And most of the time, those are good, but not here. And she says, if you really want to understand who Abraham was, was and is and what's going on, you ought to back it up and begin a few verses earlier in chapter 11, verse 27. And she's right. Why? Well, because Abraham's story doesn't actually begin with Abraham. Abraham's story begins with someone else. And the writer of Genesis is trying to get you to see that. Let's take a look. Chapter 11, verse 27 says, this is the account of Terah's family line. And what did Terah do? Well, it says, Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So Abraham was the son of a man named Terah. And who was this man? Who was Abraham's father? Well, the book of Joshua, written a little while later, is looking back on this passage. And in the book of Joshua, God speaks to the people of Israel. And he says, you got to know this about Terah. He says this, Joshua 24, 2. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. Terah and his children, this is pointing out, worshiped idols. And what did they worship? Well, likely they worshiped the moon. That's what Ur of the Chaldeans was. It was an ancient center of lunar worship. And likely they moved there to be there and they worshiped again, the moon. And so why does the Bible include this detail? Well, it's because Genesis, the story of Genesis is the story of the seed. You say, what's that? What's the story of the seed? Well, back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they broke God's heart, God said, okay, I've got a plan. I'm going to get the planet back. And one day, Eve, one of your descendants, a seed from your line is going to come and he's going to crush all evil and make the world whole. And so the seed began to be traced through the book of Genesis. And it was first traced through Seth. You may remember Genesis 4. It says, Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a Bible way of saying Seth knew God. He worshiped him. But as the book goes on, as it traces the seed through the generations, we watch the seed become more and more corrupted. And right here, right now, the seed of Adam and Eve, the seed of what was supposed to be the deliverer is now traced through a man named Terah who worships false gods and teaches his children to do the same. Abraham grew up worshiping the moon. This is the end of the line for the seed. There is no more, this is saying, no more connection to the true one true God, no more worship or knowledge left in the earth of the creator. All is lost and it's worse than you think. (laughs) Because not only is this the end of a line spiritually, this is also showing us this is the end of the line physically for the seed. We're told this about Abraham's wife, verse 30. It says, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. What does this mean? Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, commentator says this, 
The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us there is no foreseeable future. There is no power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over for the seed, this is saying. It's over for the family of God, for the children of Adam and Eve, and therefore it is over for the human race. That's what we're being told. But, but, come on, but, and then the voice of God echoes, rings across time and space and history, and the call of God comes into one man's life and raises that one man's faith from the dead and ultimately raises that one man's body from the dead because that's what the call of God does. The call of God raises the dead. You can say amen to that. The call of God can raise back to life what has died and the call of God coming in into your life can do the impossible. That's what this is saying. I don't know about you. I grew up uh, in a traditional denominational church and in a somewhat, uh, you know, strict Christian school um, for a number of years. Thanks mom and dad. And I was made to memorize portions of scripture, maybe like some of you, and they're all kind of ringing around in there. Entire passages in the King James, you know, already on demand. And, um, but for a number of reasons, as I grew up, I became like Abraham, an idol worshiper. Now I didn't worship the moon, but I worshiped sports. I worshiped self. I worshiped the relationships. I worshiped baseball, especially And baseball. Let me tell you is a terrible God sports parents. They don't really love your kids. It's a terrible God. The moon didn't love Abraham back. But then let me tell you as a freshman in college, the call of God came into my life. A man at a, at a conference, you know, kind of church meeting like that, campus meeting, called me out of the crowd and began to say things about me that only a supernatural God can know. He began to prophesy over me. And in that moment, I was changed. God saved me. And up to that moment, I could not change myself. I couldn't. Maybe that's your story. I couldn't break the habits of lust or, or of self or of pride. I didn't even know it was possible to be free. But the call of God raised my life, in a sense, from the dead, my heart from the dead. And by the way, that story about me, that'll be true of my kids as well and your kids as well, parents, unless they experience the call of God. Now, they'll be nice because you're nice. And they'll be in a nice church because you're in a nice church. But they'll just be nice idol worshipers unless they experience the call of God for themselves. And now they won't worship the moon, but they'll worship success or they'll worship career or their spouse or something. They've got to have the intervening call of God as well. And a few years ago, you may know the story. That same call came in a different way into the life of this church about 10 years ago. This church, oh, it was the end of a line for this church. It was looking dead, no way forward, broken by all kind of stuff. But the call of God came into the lives of some people you may know named John and Aaron Dave, Lloyd, Brett, Melissa Milliken, uh, Barnabas Willis, he wasn't married yet. Jamie Smith, he wasn't married yet. Gerald Bowie, he wasn't married yet. The, the Stephanos, Lafferty's, uh, Wendell Williams wasn't married yet. John and Lauren 
Tribu, they were married. Uh, Jeff and Quinn Smith and a bunch of others. Sorry, I don't have a time to list you all. You're in the Hall of Fame, by the way. But the call of God came to them. Lead this church into a, a new kind of place to where I'm taking you. And they made space for me, made space for Carrie and our family. And because of the gracious, hear me, call and will of God, we are who we are today. A vibrant mosaic with our best days in front of us. And all of you are a part of that vision, fueled at its very core by the courage it takes to follow and respond to the call of God. And a few years later, yeah, a few years later, that call came into my life in a different and even more challenging way. In my life, my marriage was in a tough place. Looked like the end of the line in many ways. The path was dark, no way forward. But the call of God came. Follow me this way. Lay your life down this way. Respond to me this way. The call of God changed our marriage, brought it back to life. Let me ask you, have you experienced this? Have your children experienced this? Your marriage experienced this? Abraham, he was living a small and forgettable life. Can you see? Just a footnote in his father's history. An heir to idolatry. And that's it. But the call broke him out. The call made him free. The call set him loose. It can do the same for you. That's because, number one, the call of God raises the dead. Number two, the call of God, and I told you you'd like this today. All right, more where this came from. Call of God, number two, sends you out. It sends you out. You say, all right, call of God sounds nice. You were yelling at me a minute ago. Now you're calmed down. I'm listening. Sends me where exactly? That's kind of important to know. I've got like a planner and an iCal and stuff needs to be written down. Well, where did the call of God take Abraham? Let's see. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And that's the point. Sometimes you don't know exactly where you're going, what you're doing when you're following God. And this, by the way, is a larger pattern of how God works in the life of Abraham. Think about it. Go out from your country, Abraham. Where, God? I'll show you later. Abraham, you're going to have a child. How, God? I'll show you later. Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Why, God? I'll show you later. What does this mean? It means that to the degree you are willing to obey the call of God, even and especially when you don't have all the information, to that degree, the call of God will make you great. Make you great. And in that one verse, one statement, you can see something crucial. And that's this. That the call of God is less of a what? The call of God is less of a where or a destination even. The call of God is more of a why. It's more of a why. The call of God is more of a why. There's a reason why God sent Abram out and why he sends you out today. Underneath it all is a why, something larger that God's always doing that we can't usually don't see. But if we'll trust him, he'll bring it to pass. So then let's ask, well, why does God send us out? Now, I tried to do my best to summarize Genesis 12, and here's a statement. I'm going to say it to you and then try to unpack it. God sends us out, here it is, from our culture on a quest for a mission 
so that our dreams burn more brightly than our fears. Say it again. He sends us out from our culture on a quest for a mission so that our dreams burn more brightly than our fears. Let's break this down. First, he sends us out, it says, from our culture. God said, go from your country, your people, your father's household. Listen, God tells him not only to get, look at this, out of his country, but out of his people. That's his ethnic group and from his house. Why? Oh, it's because these things sometimes can be the tomb of our faith. They can be the place where our faith goes to die. They can destabilize and crush our faith. And when God's wanting to do something new. Now listen, I love my country. And I rooted so hard for the U.S. in the Olympics. It was on the TV like every night over the last couple of weeks. And how about the women's hockey team? That was that amazing. How many of you guys like those, that men's curling team? How about that dude with the mustache and a red hat? You're like, man, there's America right there. And somebody from, or at least Minnesota or wherever the guy's from, right, from the north. And listen, I rooted so hard for them. But listen, the United States is not bigger than the Word of God. U.S. isn't bigger than the call of God. And if we can't say when and where there's a difference between what this country aspires to be and where it's actually living up to that, and if we can't say when and where there's a difference between what this country is and what God's call on nations is and ought to be, listen, at that point, if we can't say those things, it just shows we've blended in and we're Americans first instead of people who follow the call of God first. And I love my own people group. I do. You know, us uh, uh, SBF wearing, limited vertical jumping, and PBS watching descendants of European immigrants, right? <laughs> but sometimes my people group, this is meaning ethnic group, and yours too, can be what actually crushes your faith. Because every ethnic group has just got some kind of values in it somewhere. They're all different. That raise themselves up against the call, the knowledge, the will of God. And it's why being, therefore, in a multi-ethnic church can be valuable. Because it can, being here, can, if you will, allow it. It can allow you to experience the call of God maybe in a fuller way than you've ever experienced it before. And you say, well, yeah, I, I'd hope so because gosh, being in this church, it's like hard sometimes. And yeah, well, it was hard for Abraham too, right? Was he a part of his ethnic group anymore? No, he wasn't living exclusively in his own group anymore. He had to leave it, at least in his case, to follow God completely. And I love my family. I love mom and dad. I know they love me, but when the call of God came into my life, I had to follow God's dreams for me, and you do too, instead of your parents' dreams. Because first, the call of God sends you out. But second, it sends you out on a quest, on a quest. What's this? Well, a few years ago, uh, Carrie for Christmas, because of course she did, she got me an annotated copy of The Hobbit, one of my favorite books. It's been fascinating to read some of the background. And if you've, you know, you read the books or you've seen the, the different movie cycles, you'll know there's a big difference between the, the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies because The Hobbit's essentially like an adventure. The subtitle tells you, it says, there and back again right? It's a nice movie. He goes, has an adventure, you know, dragon, but he comes home and that's an adventure. You go and you have some excitement. It kind of spices up your life. And then you come home and you pick up your life where you left off. An adventure is there and back again. But the Lord of the Rings, though, when you read it, it's like way darker, way heavier. People are dying by like the thousands all throughout the, you know, the, the cycle. Why? Because it's a quest. 
It's a quest. See, a quest, hear me, isn't something you choose. The quest comes to you. Bilbo chose his adventure. But Frodo, in the movie, he says it. He says, I don't even like this. I wish this thing had never come to me. That's what it means to be on a quest. You sense a requirement, an obligation because of what's at stake somewhere, somehow in a world around you. And let me tell you, if you go on a quest, you never really come back from it. You never really come back. Or if you do, you come back different. You die or you come back changed from a quest. And it's so changed, Frodo, you know that in the end, he never felt at home anymore from where his old life was. You could say... The quest prepared his heart for a new home. And I think God does the same with us. And I want you to know, therefore, that Christianity is not an adventure. It is not there and back again. Christianity following God is a quest. God's call to Abraham is in a quest. Abraham did not poke his hand up and say, Oh, God, I'm kind of bored living here in Earth, the Chaldeans. Could you send me on an adventure somewhere? God said, Abraham, go. Get out. Go to where I'm going to show you. It's going to change your life. Christianity is, hear me, a whole new life. It's a quest, not an adventure. Three, though, the call of God sends us out on a quest. Third, for a mission. Look at verse two here. God says to him, I will, Abraham, look at all this list of promises. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and there's more. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed from you. This is amazing, but it's especially amazing considering who Abraham was. I mean, can you imagine him? Uh, He's probably saying, God, are you sure you got the right guy? I've gotten, let me count them, zero children. And you say one day, my family, my children will bless, impact the whole world. That's crazy. And if you heard this and you went and told your friends or family, they would swear you were straight crazy, right? It's you're like hearing voices, but that's not what Abraham was hearing. He was hearing and experiencing the call of God for something big, something global, something that would take his entire lifetime, right, to get going. And what I want you to see is that part of what made Abraham so big, so significant was that he had a big vision for the whole world from the heart of God himself. So what did Abraham do with this big vision, big thing, big global deal, all people's He just took the first step and he went. A few years ago, I was in a meeting with some other pastors and churches in the area and it it was reported to us that someone had gone and asked the uh, Austin Independent School District superintendent, what's the best way that the church, Big C, Capital C Church in Austin, the greater area, can impact the school system? And the answer came back immediately. The answer was, we need mentors. Send in mentors because if a child doesn't learn to read by the third grade, their odds of delinquency skyrocket, their odds of being in prison and a statistic skyrocket. So when I heard that, I came to our elder team and I said, listen, can we do something about this? Can we please create this you know, mentor program at a local elementary school? And they said, you know, great, go get them. So I just looked on a map, found Live Oak Elementary over here uh, uh, near us, and I looked online, and I found the name of the counselor, and I picked up a phone, and I called her, and I said, uh, hi, I'm from this church down the street, and we'd like to serve your school. 
you know, crickets, <laughs> silence. I said, oh, we're totally normal. I lied to her. You're right. <laughs> normal people, can we just come in like to bring mentors and I don't know, do whatever you kind of need done. We don't know. We just want to help you. And she said, well, we should probably meet and talk first. <laughs> and I said, well, you're a good school counselor. And so we got going with this mentor program, I think 2011, and started doing breakfast for the teachers and lunches for the teachers and Christmas gifts for the teachers and staff and Christmas for all these 60, 70 families and, of course, a, a ton of mentors and food over the weekend for students who wouldn't have had it otherwise. And we've been the partner of the year for that school for many, many years since we began. And that's pretty great. And you ought to applaud for that. Come on, that's a pretty great thing. You've done that and we've done that. And, but as great as that was, God, I think, was doing something even more amazing because the child that I got matched with, and let me tell you, if you're a mentor, it is no accident, no accident who God pairs you with. I was matched with this young man. He was six years old, first grade. And two weeks earlier, his father had dropped dead of a heart attack in front of him before a school on a school morning. And I was paired with him and for a year with his other brother, older brother, and I tried to begin to walk them through the trauma of that. And after they kind of worked through that, I began to discover that he was falling behind in school and he could barely read. He was way behind on the assessment. So I took that annotated copy of The Hobbit and I read it to him and I did the voices and the characters. Yes, I was in the theater at Irving High School. Thank you, Irving, Texas. Began to read to him 30 minutes a week all over that school in a hallway, in a classroom, in a cafeteria, in a courtyard, every place. Took us like, I don't know, three years to read it and get through it. I had him read it back to me. And by the time we got done and he finished fifth grade, not only was he third in the whole fifth grade class in reading, yeah, he placed an advanced score, advanced score on the reading test. Pretty great. God wasn't done yet. He now is at sixth grade over at Deer Park, and he's making straight A's over there. Isn't that amazing? And he asked me to come be his mentor there. I said, okay, sure. (laughs) Didn't even really have to think about that. I said yes, and I followed him there. We got a few mentors there as well. But one day, right before Christmas, at the end of the last semester, I was dropping him off in his class, and I ran into the principal, who's a fine man and cares about his school and loves his school, and ran to the principal, and he said, hey, I've seen you here over the last few months with this young man, and you know, how did you get to know him? And I said, well, I've been knowing him for a number of years, and I met him right after this tragedy in his life and followed him up here into sixth grade, and then I went for it. I said, I'm actually the lead pastor at Mosaic Church. This church, like right down the street. And we've been over at Live Oak for years and we do breakfast and stuff for the teachers because we love the school and we love the school district and, and teachers and schools. And we've been the partner of the year, the district, and we put mentors in there and all this good stuff. And so I went for it again and I said, hey, is there anything we can do for your school? And he said, well, you know, we need mentors in our school. I said, well, that'd be great. He said, you know, uh, we've got a lot of minority uh, females there. and They're having a hard time. Middle school is tough. And I said, um, you know, it is. I got three boys in junior high. The struggle is real. And so I said, sure, we'll see what we can do. And then I said, well, what about an after-school program? Because our youth pastor, unbeknownst to the principal, youth pastor, Wendell Williams and I have been dreaming about this after-school program we could maybe put in over at a local uh, junior high waiting for a door to open. And I said, what about an after-school program? He said, that'd be great. We'd love to do that, except, except we just applied for this grant from the United Way, and the funding fell through, so we can't do it. I said, well, what if we funded it? And he said, step into my office. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
step into my office and I said, listen, we'd love to put this in or get this going somehow. And Wendell Williams is our, our, our youth pastor over at Mosaic and his background is doing uh, high level quality programming for middle school and high school. He's got this vibrant growing group there. And he said, well, have Wendell call me. So I went back and told Wendell and gave him the number and all, gave him the card. And two weeks later, they finally got to meet. And Wendell came back from the church and he said, you'll never believe what happened. He said, because in between the time you talked to him and he and I met, that principal applied for and got tens of thousands of dollars in school funding for after school grants. And he said, we could have all of it and do whatever we wanted to do with it. He said, it was all ours, of course, under his supervision within the district guidelines, of course. (laughs) I want to definitely respect them and their rules and all that. So we're working on doing that. Isn't that great? What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, that just started with one step, right? One phone call, one fumbling phone call, one awkward phone call, one, hey, can we serve you? Why? Genesis 12, we're called to be a blessing, right, to all the world. And because of that now, because of you, because of people like Jennifer Majors and Kristen Lafferty and Amy Yates, our coordinators over there, now years later, one Two-minute conversation is substantiated by six years of faithful service. And the door comes wide open for Jesus' church to serve. That's just the next step. Why? Because God's call sends us out. And because sometimes it takes time for God to grow the dream he puts in your heart. Now, why does he do this? He sends us out on a quest for a mission. Ultimately, though, and I love this so that your dreams burn more brightly than your fears. Abraham dreamed of a son. We'll we'll see this as as we go on in Genesis. He dreamed of a family, but he was so afraid of what following the call of God meant. But what you see at the end, by the end of his life, was that that dream, the dream God put in his heart, it burned more brightly than all the stuff he was afraid of. Now listen, I bet most of you have some kind of dream today. I know I do. Lots of dreams, big and small and because you got dreams, because I have dreams, you've probably got fears. You have fears you face. Your dreams might not come true. Um, you're facing stuff every day. But you know what? Your dream might not come true, right? And this isn't a Disney film we're in, right? Not, because not every dream is really from God, right? Sometimes dreams are just from yourself. And at the same time, not every dream that's really from God, it is from God, is for you in your own lifetime, David had a great dream, didn't he? King David, God, I want to build a temple for you. God said, that's a great dream. You're not going to do it. It's going to be your son. Your son's going to build that. Joseph's got these great dreams, but it takes nearly a lifetime, years in prison, going through stuff for the dream God put in his heart to come to pass. But whether it's like Abraham or David or Joseph, if you'll let the call of God shape you, if you'll follow God through maybe even like Abraham, decades of barrenness, all the difficulties, all the humbling, all the tears, all the difficulties, and you'll listen to people, advice, community, etc. Let that dream push you forward in the end. Let me tell you, it'll burn more brightly than your fears, and you'll have something great to show for your life at the end. Now, you say, well, that's great, but Morgan, there are these people who don't like me. That's crazy, right? They don't like you. How can they not like you? It's you. There are people who don't like me. It's crazy. I know they're out there. I get emails from you all the time and come after church sometimes. Not everybody likes this church. Crazy people, right? But what I'm telling you is the truth. What keeps me going is the call of God because the call of God sends us 
out of our culture on a quest for a mission so that our dreams burn more brightly than our fears. Where can, then, we get the power to do all of this, the vision for all this in the end? It's by seeing this third and final thing. I love this, that the call of God does, the call of God not only raises the dead, it not only sends us out. Thirdly, finally, it changes even our name. It is our name. Flash forward. When you get to the New Testament, you come to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the first book in the whole New Testament. The first book begins with something curious. Matthew, the gospel writer, begins his story of the life of Jesus exactly how the writer of Genesis began his story and the life of Abraham. And Matthew begins his story thousands of years later, chapter 1. Verse 1, first words, first book of the New Testament. Did I make my point? Matthew begins with the same thing. It says the record, literally the account of, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What's this? Well, a genealogy, you may know, was a, was a kind of a first century resume. See, today when we, when we send out our resumes, when we apply for jobs, we don't list our parents or our siblings even. Well, we, we list our, our contacts, like our, our former employers, maybe a friend or two. And we list all the people who can tell someone in the present who we've been in the past. And Matthew is doing the same thing here. Who, who's Jesus, you ask? Who's this person of Jesus? What has he come to do? Ah, oh, Matthew says, listen, out of all the people you could talk to, out of all the references, you could like pick up the phone and call. You got to talk to one person. And I'm going to put that one person at the top of the list. And he doesn't begin with Adam. First person, right? Seth called on the name of the Lord. Noah, even righteous in his generation. No, Matthew begins the account of Jesus with this name. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Now, how can Matthew say to really understand Jesus, you've got to understand Abraham first? Oh, it's because of this. Like Abraham, Jesus left his father's home in heaven. And he went to a foreign land on a quest to begin a new family line to rescue the world from its dead end, from the end of a line of humanity. And like Abraham, he wandered from place to place. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, when he came to earth, he left his earthly family on a mission to fulfill God's promise to Abraham to become the very blessing and the seed that Abraham could only dream of, the one through whom all peoples would be blessed. But unlike Abraham, Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life, laid his life down so that our dead ends could become new life. He came to rescue us from our barrenness, to raise us back to life, right? Break all the power of all the idols that grip us and keep us chained to our small little lives, living for ourselves. And therefore, let me tell you, I don't care how talented you are today. I don't care how big you are, how much money you have, your big vision, your big company, your big thing. Unless you've allowed the call of God to come in and touch that, your dream in your life is too small. It's too small. God doesn't just want to rescue you from sin, although that is amazing. It's incredible and true. God doesn't want to rescue you from yourself, and that's amazing and necessary, by the way. What he wants to do, Abraham's life shows us, is to raise back to life 
and refine the dream that he put in our hearts in the first place and give us back a better version of ourselves and a better version of the dream he put in us. You say, how can I know that? Oh, look at Abraham's name, right? We've been calling him, yeah, Abraham this morning, but his real name was Abram. And God later changed it. But, you know, throughout the Bible, you read the Bible, God does this. He changed people's names. And most of the time when he changes it, it's to indicate that God's changing like their character or nature or substance. Jacob, the deceiver. He changes to Israel, the prince who wrestles with God. He changes Simon, the reed, shaky, quaking, you know, wavering to Peter, the rock. But here, Abram means father. Well, what did God change it to? It's Abraham which means exalted father, more of the same. See, Abram meant daddy. Abraham meant big daddy. (laughs) Sorry you knew that was coming, but what does this mean? God's telling him, Abram, I'm changing, I'm refining and expanding your dream because your life and your dreams are too small. But if you'll trust me and you'll follow me, maybe even through decades of barrenness and brokenness and hurt and wandering, I'm going to refine that thing and give it. I'm going to exalt it. You wanted to be a father? I'm going to make you an exalted father. And in the end, God's saying to him and to us, Abraham, I'm going to give you in the end what you would have asked for if you would have known what to ask for all along. That's how good and gracious God is. Have you allowed God to do this in your life, church? Your heart. Have you handed him over? Yourself. Your big dream, that thing you're holding on to. And you say, God, I am small. You are large. Do in my life what you have in your heart for me. That's saying what Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. To say, God, I trust that whatever you choose for me is better than what I would have chosen for me in the end. That's what it means to follow God. He'll give you in the end what you would have asked for if you would have known what to ask for all along. And that's what it means to follow the call of God.